Hey everyone, this is Arnold with Prom Welcome. Happy Wednesday. This is a show about Asian American restaurateurs, chefs, founders, and their origin stories of how they came to be. And today's episode, we're sitting down with Jing. She is the founder of Fly by Jing, which is a Chinese spice and condiments company. It wasn't always a spice and condiments company. Actually, back in the day, she ran Fly by Jing as an underground supper club in Shanghai, of all places. And even before that, she lived, honestly, it sounds like nine lives. And she, she's done so much over her career and had so many twists and turns along the way and a lot of obstacles and... Um, Obviously, just being an Asian American female founder, no less. Um, there's been it's been an uphill battle for her, but she's found a lot of success so far. Having launched uh, around two years ago now, she went through a rebrand just a few months ago in November of 2020, um, and we touch on a lot of great topics. And um, in an effort to highlight her, in an effort to highlight a up and coming CPG company, and CPG being consumer packaged goods. And it's a hot space right now. You know, a lot of chefs are getting into the space of doing their own sauces and oils and just pantry staples because I think that given the situation that we're in, people, when I, when I say people, I think operators and chefs are just looking for new innovative ways to get into people's homes, right? Because in some states, even in, here in California, um, outdoor dining hasn't come back yet. And the way we enjoy restaurants are very different from the way it, it has been and the way it used to be. So I think the question now becomes, how do we take that experience and bring it to someone's home? And the easiest way I can think of, and I'm sure people are getting this too, is, hey, let's jar things, let's bottle things, and, and uh, let's get them into people's pantries. So um, again, really excited about this conversation. Happy to share this talk that I had with Jing with you all and um, I'll circle back at the end with some closing comments but hope you enjoy the hope you enjoy the interview with these episodes like I, I love to talk about kind of how people grew up where they grew up because I think that the Asian American experience while it seems singular it isn't you know everyone has a very interesting perspective as a byproduct of where they grew up and I know you grew up in uh, Canada so um, just I wanted to talk about that and being born in China, growing up in Canada, and and and, and you know your first ten experiences. I, I actually grew up moving around a lot, so Canada was happened to be the place that I stayed the longest. Um, but prior to almost in high school, um, we moved every year to a different country that generally was a new a new language as well. Uh, we lived in England, Austria, France, Italy all before Canada. So, um, yeah, it was a bit of, a um, a, a very kind of crazy, um, upbringing, but that, uh, but I was glad that it culminated in Canada because, um, it was the first place that I did kind of feel a sense of belonging a little bit, you know, there was such a, um, you know, mosaic of different cultures in Canada. So for the first time in a long time, I didn't feel like, you know, I stuck out like a sore thumb, which I definitely did in some cities in Europe. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, uh, I was born in Chengdu and, you know, because of my 
experience, you know, having, um, having to adapt to all these different cultures and often code switching and, you know, trying to figure out where I belonged in, in all of this. Um, I think that it's uh, like later in life, like in my late teens or early twenties, that's when I really um, started to feel the need to figure out who I was or reconnect with myself and my culture. And, you know, I never felt super Chinese or super Canadian or anything else. Um, and uh, so wasn't sure where I really fit in. And um and so it wasn't until I kind of by accident ended up in Beijing on an exchange semester with my, um, with my college. And it was kind of by accident because I had wanted to go somewhere else. I'd wanted to go to Hong Kong or something. I was studying business and I was like, oh, well, I, I had become pretty disconnected from my from my um, kind of Chinese background. And so I was like, well, in Hong Kong, like they'll, they speak English and, you know, it seems more Western and like something that I would probably um, understand more. And I applied for that, but it was super popular and they ended up placing me in Beijing. And I was initially like disappointed. Mm. And then I went and it was right around the time of the Beijing Olympics. And yeah, and uh, that was kind of a magical time in China. Um, the country was kind of like experimenting with opening up a bit more to the West, and um, they were trying to attract a lot of, you know, uh, foreigners to come into China to cover the Olympics and to really just, it was kind of like a, a big propaganda show, mm -hmm. right? Like our country is, is amazing and here are all the reasons. And so it was a great time as a foreigner or as an expat um, to be there because it just, there's so much going on. It was so dynamic. Um, you just met the most interesting people every single day. And um, I fell in love with Beijing. And so <clears throat> Um, eventually when I went back to Canada to work, because after graduating business school, I was offered a full-time job, um, in, um, uh, at P&G, so CBG company, um, as a brand manager and which, you know, is a very coveted job and, um, you know, definitely the, some, I largely took it, you know, because it made my parents happy. Um, mm -hmm. but it was I, when I came back to Toronto and I started working there and um, I just knew that my heart was elsewhere. And um, I always knew that um, I wasn't going to stay in a large corporation like that forever. Um, I just, you know, it, it was too predictable for me. And um, so after, after a year, um, and I had worked at PNG actually, even before I graduated, like for several summers. So I knew that world quite well and I knew exactly kind of the path um, ahead of me. And so after a year full time, I, I decided to leave and move to China. So um, ended up back in China where uh, I spent about 10 years um, before I moved to LA two years ago. Wow. I have so many questions. Um, <laughs> one, one, if I may ask is why did you move like every year? Was this because of, uh, your, 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 your parents occupation or. Yeah. Good question. Um, it was because my father was a professor. He was a nuclear physicist and, um, that's a whole other story. Um, my Chinese name is Gao Jing Xuan and Xuan is actually, um, a homonym 
that my father gave me is a homonym for um, string theory. So he named me after string theory, which I like. It's <laughs> 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 like a really nerdy fact. I like font. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and so we moved with his job a lot, partially because um, it was difficult for us as you know Chinese citizens at the time to. Um, be permanent residents anywhere. So it was kind of like different universities would always invite him to become a visiting professor, but they wouldn't be able to extend past like a year, let's say. And so we kept moving until, you know, they, they eventually knew that they wanted me to, you know, get an education and um, preferably in North America and Canada seemed to be easier to do that in than the United States at the time. So we moved to Canada and my dad actually gave up his career. Um, well, he like switched into a different field entirely and he went into finance. Um, but yeah, so it was, it was definitely not an easy journey for, uh, for my family and especially I think for my dad and, you know, he was one of the top scientists in, in China. Um, and he was on track to, you know, getting a Nobel prize in physics, um, which, um, others later did receive for the field that he was kind of a pioneer in. So, um, it was a big sacrifice and, uh, yeah, but, uh, I think, um, I think, yeah, like there was definitely, uh, a, there's a lot about that whole journey that I found out much later because, you know, Asian parents don't like to, yeah, are, are generally yep. not so forthright with, yep. Yep. <laughs> with things. So, um, but yeah, it's a fascinating, um, yeah. Okay. So the next, the, the second question is, I know you just returned to your birth name, Jing, very recently, actually. And before that you went by Jenny. So I picked my English name too, actually. So I was curious, like, did you, did you pick that name, Jenny? And also... How did, how did that kind of come about? Yeah, I don't ex remember the exact time that happened, but I think it was between the age of seven and eight. Um, it was after I w had moved from Germany. To, uh, it was after Germany and England. So I think it was when we had moved to Austria. And um, I remember, you know, well, for one, like in in most of these countries, I didn't even speak the language or could I couldn't even communicate with the kids um, for at least the first half year, um, you know, until I slowly started to pick up some of the language. And I mean, as a child, you do that a lot faster. But, um, you know, I definitely felt super alienated in Germany. I remember going to first grade being the only non blonde Caucasian kid. And, um, I, you know, there's like photos that I still have that, um, where I just look like a fish out of water. And, um, I remember, you know, in, uh, in school kids not being able to pronounce my name or to, or making fun of it. And, um, you know, cause Jing Shren, like I go by Jing now, but like Jing and my middle name Shren is, it's very difficult you know, for, yeah for kids who had never encountered, you know, Asian people to pronounce. And, um, I think it was really just a desire to, um, to not stick out, to kind of blend in as much as possible. And also, um, I think coming from England to Austria, where I had to speak German again, it was almost, it was like, it was like, oh, well, like I have an English name. So, you know, I came from England, not China kind of thing. And it was kind of this like, yeah, like uh, an unconscious kind of way of like 
you know, saying like, you can't look down on me. I'm, I don't know. Like, um, I'm like, I'm like I, one of you kind of thing. I'm one of you kind of thing. Yeah. And it, it's, I don't know. It, it's, um, it's some, it's a memory of like, definitely blocked out. I don't remember consciously, um, you know, choosing the name, but I know that I did. It was probably from watching TV and just, you know, it was a name that was quite common and sounded, you know, close enough to, to my actual name. So. Um, changing, changing tides a little bit, but I want us to talk about your time in Asia because you did so many fascinating things while you were there, especially in China. Um, I read that you staged at this crazy legendary restaurant. And then also you did your own restaurant too for a few years. Right. And, um, kind of want to talk about that period and then kind of slowly, but surely transition into, um, you know, early fly by Jing, like 1.0, where it wasn't even a spice and condiment company, but we'll, we'll get there. But want to talk more about, you know, uh, you pivoting and getting to the restaurant industry. I was working at PNG brand management. When I moved to uh, Beijing, I initially went there to just kind of travel and, and um, worked a little bit for a microfinance um, nonprofit that was based there. And, um, then I had a friend who, you know, cause I'm Canadian. So, uh, I had some Canadian friends who reached out and they were working for Blackberry at the time. And that was the number one smartphone even before, you know, iPhones came out. And so, um, that, um, you know, so there was an opportunity that opened up for me and, um, they asked me if I wanted to move to Singapore, um, to, to, to work on this. And, um, I thought that was, really exciting. I did that. And it, you know, it was an amazing experience. Just my role, um, involved a ton of travel all over Asia Pacific and, um, and through that travel, you know, um, across, uh, Asia, but also in China, it allowed me to just like see so much and, and more importantly, eat a lot and, uh, really explore the food scene, um, in China and beyond. So, um, so that was amazing. And, uh, after a couple of years there, um, I really wanted to get back to China because, um, Singapore is a small Island and, you know, as, as amazing as it is, um, it does start to feel really small after a while. And I thought that there was so much more, um, that I still needed to explore in China. So, um, I was offered another job in tech, um, with a company called frog design. Um, they, um, they're based in San Francisco, um, really respected kind of innovation consultancy. And, um, so I moved to Shanghai with, with them. Um, and then there I kind of deepened my study into Chinese food, um, and started just kind of writing about it, sharing it online, whether it was with, um, on my own blog or, um, with travel and food publications, um, internationally. And my objective at that point was really just to shine a light on the cuisine because I felt like there was so little information about it in the West. Um, and yet, uh, Western media, particularly American, you know, media dictated so much of global culture and the way that we look at people and culture and cuisines. And so, um, so I was writing for a lot of these publications and that kind of got the attention of some people. And, you know, um, I, I was, fortunate enough to have uh, done some really cool projects with like Eddie Huang. Um, I filmed uh, fresh off the boat with him in Shanghai and um, the like 
Bizarre Foods with Andrew Zimmern um, and a lot of other kind of TV shows for the BBC and so on. Um, so that was really exciting. And I felt a lot of momentum with within Chinese food. I didn't quite know what my calling there was yet, but I knew that I wanted to focus my energies there. And um, so I decided to leave my job without a plan, (laughs) which I do not recommend. Um, But I, uh, yeah, I I quit and just started, you know, really focusing on my writing. Um, And, you know, by uh, through just, you know, happenstance, I met, um, who, a person who would eventually become my business partner in opening, Mm. um, Baoism, which was my restaurant in Shanghai. Um, and sort of this, uh, this idea came about to, um, create a place that, uh, married, regional Chinese flavors with a modern kind of approach um, that I was seeing in like fast casual restaurants in the U S so like sweet greens and Chipotle. Um, so like a really efficient QSR model that um, was also super high quality and um, where, you know, there was integrity with the ingredients and you also knew kind of where everything came from, um, which, was a big issue in China at the time because food safety um, was kind of one of the top three concerns um, of everybody in the country. And so, um, but I wanted to make sure that it wasn't a Western concept, like a salad bar, um, because I felt like um, there was just so much to celebrate within regional Chinese flavors. And, um, and, uh, and yeah, and so I, and I didn't see anything that was kind of a modern mm. approach to that in Shanghai at the time. So, um, so the idea for Baoism kind of came from that and the concept was, um, kind of a, a lunch spot where you can mix and match different sides and, uh, mains that consisted of like baos and rice bowls and noodles. Um, and yeah. And so that was, um, my first business in food and, um, it taught me a lot of lessons. I think I was in my mid twenties at the time. And I think most people, you know, have dreams of owning their own restaurant. And, um, I think, um, at that age to me, it was, um, you know, I definitely had the objective to, um, to, to bring more awareness to Chinese cuisine. But I think also there was, um, you know, it's just that everyone just wants to say that they have a restaurant, right? But, um, but it's, it's extremely difficult and especially operating a restaurant, um, or business in, in China where, um, you know, my Chinese is, is great, but it's, uh, I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself, you know, a, um, a local by any means. Right. And so there is a lot of, um, what is the word? Um, opaqueness, like when it comes to navigating the landscape. So there's definitely difficulties at every corner. And um, I realized that process that running a restaurant wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. Um, And I realized that what I loved about the experience and, you know, we did really well. We had international and local acclaim, like we won awards. Um, It was extremely popular, but um, what I enjoyed from that process was, was like 
the product creation itself was the brand building and the storytelling. Um, and I was just mm. thinking like, how do I really do this on a larger scale? Mm. <clears throat> and that kind of led me to, um, but also I was like looking for my own voice within Chinese food. And I, at the time, wasn't sure what that was. Um, I was like, what can I bring to the table that is not, already there. And what, it, and for me, you know, is really important um, for that to be a personal expression that was, you know, the only thing I knew, which is colored by my own experiences. Right. And I have such a unique experience having lived in so many different countries. Um, and I knew that how, how I felt, which is that I felt like I was um, rooted in my, in my culture, in tradition, but, um, but I didn't fit, quite fit there either. Like mm -hmm. there was, um, yeah, there was something much more modern that I wanted to express. And um, so I was, I, I wanted to figure out what that meant um, in terms of Chinese food. So mm -hmm. I decided the best way to do that was to go back to the source. And so I went to Chengdu. I, I, have, a, I have a side comment, which is I, I am now piecing things together. And I got to say, I think your blog, it was called Jing Theory, right? Mm -hmm. that is so awesome because your name meant string theory. Now I'm like, it's just like, it just, like, it just something in my head clicked just now. I'm just, yeah, that's awesome. That's great. Yeah. I love, I love how you go about naming things like Taoism. It was a great name too. Like I, it's, I love it. Um, Fly by Jing. I'd love to start talking about it because like I mentioned before, um, it wasn't always a spice and condiment company. It was actually, uh, an underground kind of pop-up supper club situation, right? Um, and that really started after I had spent some time mm -hmm. in Chengdu. Um, I, I had known um, Chef Weibo for a little, for like, I guess, 10 years at that point. Um, I um, just through like, you know, visiting the restaurant, talking to him and his wife, like writing about him in international publications. And so we just always kept in touch. And when I uh, was doing my kind of culinary soul searching, I called him up and I was like, can I just come and spend some time with you guys? And, um, they were super kind and, you know, let me do that. And, um, and it was honestly, I spent more time really just talking to him and his wife than like really working in his kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, yeah, I mean, I definitely like saw the ins and outs of how he was running his private kitchen, but also, um, you know, he gave me access to his library and he has all these like, you know, centuries old cookbooks. Um, and I, you know, really got to know kind of the traditionalist. I mean, he's not even a traditionalist, right? Like he's actually quite modern um, compared to some of his contemporaries, but um, it, it is, you know, still a traditionalist kind of, uh, you know, um, the, where he came from. Right. And so, being able to um, absorb, you know, that and uh, and then kind of synthesize it. I think that's kind of where I came out with uh, the concept of Fly by Jing, which, so the name Fly by Jing is, you know, at the time I was still going by Jenny, but I wanted to honor my name and it was probably something subconscious in me that wanted to do that because eventually, you know, this year I, I adopted, or sorry, I, I reclaimed my, my birth name and it's been a bit of a journey. Um, and, but at the time uh, I was still uncomfortable with 
with my real name. Um, and, but I knew that I knew enough that I wanted to, I knew that I wanted to connect with it enough to, to name the business after it. And the fly is a reference to a type of restaurant in Chengdu called fly restaurants. Um, in Chinese it's called Guan. So it's literally um, hole in the walls that are scattered all over the city and they're mom and pop run. Usually there's only one place. It's not a chain. And um, a lot of people think that, you know, it's referring to the fact that maybe it's not as hygienic, but actually the naming is referring to um, the fact that they're so delicious that they attract people like flies. So um, fly restaurants are such a fabric of Chengdu's food culture. And it's only really, um, it's only really a thing in Chengdu and uh, it's famous within China. So people like travel to Chengdu to experience fly restaurants. Every local in Chengdu has their favorites. I grew up eating at these places. Um, that serve everything from street snacks, like Chengdu is famous for their street snacks, like dumplings, noodles, and wontons, to, you know, sometimes elaborate feasts, but all like really kind of home style street, you know, like just um, very hearty, um, but all kind of punctured by these like intense flavors that... Um, drew people out in hordes. And so you'd go to these um, neighborhoods in Chengdu where at like starting at like five o'clock in the evening, it's just all these, uh, the sidewalks are filled with, you know, tables and stools and people are like sharing tables. Um, you see bicycles parked next to Ferraris and it's, you know, everybody is just no matter who you are, like you're just there and uh, connecting over this pursuit of um, delicious flavor because in Chengdu, flavor trumps everything, right? Like we don't care about atmosphere. We don't care about anything else but flavor. So um, I thought that that was such a beautiful part of the culture and there's such a dynamism and, and energy to it. And I wanted to capture that energy um, in whatever new concept that I was doing. So um, I called it Fly by Jing. And the initial um, thing I did, I think, was um, was uh, a pop-up um, in Shanghai where I served like Chengdu-style street noodles. Um yeah. And then that kind of turned into a regular weekly thing in my studio in the French concession where um, I would have a, a table of 10 guests who would come from literally all over the world. Um, and uh, so I would do that every um, every week or so where I would serve a multi-course meal that consisted of um, dishes that maybe you didn't expect um, of Sichuan cuisine, whether it's because I kind of mashed it up with a few other things, or maybe it is a very traditional Sichuan dish that just nobody had known about, um, or is very little known. Um, but more often than not, it was com combining, you know, super traditional, um, Sichuan flavor profiles with, um, uh, with, forms or like with um a format that you know you wouldn't expect it with and so um that kind of took on uh sorry that kind of brought me to cities all over the world and so I started doing pop-ups in places like Japan and 
in the US, in Australia, New Zealand, um, Hong Kong. And I took these dinners on the road and literally, you know, would uh, cook for like hundreds of people at a time. And um, every time I traveled anywhere, I would pack these suitcases full of ingredients with me because I knew that these specific ingredients, which I had by that point, you know, spent years um, researching and sourcing and building those relationships. Um, I knew that they were key to the flavors. And that's something I also learned from Chef Yubois. You know, he has very specific suppliers for pretty much every single ingredient um, because he understands that the quality of what you put into it, it it's everything. Um, and so uh, that was you know, kind of the first point of consumer feedback I got, which, you know, was that instant feedback I got from diners whose eyes would bulge out. And, you know, when they realized that there's these um, incredible citron flavors that they'd never had before, and sometimes with ingredients they'd never heard of before. And so that was kind of the initial light bulb for mm -hmm. Fly by Jing as a, um, in its current iteration as a condiment and sauce company. Flavor seems to be the, the great equalizer, huh? Ferraris next to bikes. I love that. That's a great image. In any case, that's crazy. And then, you know, everyone's doing their own chili oil right now. Let's be honest. All these chefs are, or I think, I think, I think COVID as well has changed restaurants and you know, what are restaurants I think are, it's constantly ever evolving, but you were really ahead of this. In my opinion, I feel like you, 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 I'm sure something went off in your head and you're like, huh, you know what? Like I, I could, I could probably help source and sell these condiments and spices that you're using for your pop-up. So that seems to be, uh, have been the transition, but you went from that and then it became, I, I read the highest funded craft food Kickstarter campaign. That is nuts. I think, yeah. I mean, we definitely were the first kind of new school you know, chili sauce to launch in the U S um, we did that in 2018. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think it's, it's, um, it's a testament to how, um, how, how much kind of modern Chinese food and like this new type of condiments um, have taken you know the u.s market um you know that there are so many new ones um coming in into the scene now and i think that's great and you know we need to normalize more things that um really were considered like foreign or weird or anything like that before right um so we need to kind of um like that's part of what the work that fly Beijing is doing is to um show that you know we are not a monolith and, and that's part of what you're work is as well and that there's so much diversity um to be celebrated and you know when people ask us about um you know competition in this in this field um my response is always that you know there are if you go to china there are literally hundreds if not thousands of different <laughs> styles of chili sauce literally every grandmother has a different way of making chili sauce right like most families in China, they don't buy store-bought sauce. They, they make it themselves. And, 
you know, my family, you know, there's um, ones that have fermented fava bean paste in it. There's ones that have beef in it or nuts and seeds. And there's so many different ways to, to make it. And, um, and it's with more exposure that we can come to more of a understanding of like the depth and breadth of of a cuisine and of its people and its culture. So, um, so I think that's great. Um, and yeah, the way that kind of I came to it was, um, in 2018, I, by that point, um, I had already been doing the pop-ups for about a year or two years. And, um, I was thinking a lot about, um, the sauce, the sauces, because I was realizing that, um, you know, a lot of these sauces actually developed as, components of my dishes. <clears throat> and, and I realized that they were just shelf stable on their own. Um, and, uh, I had started to sell it in Shanghai, um, online and in different retailers in China. And in 2018, I was checking out the natural foods expo in Anaheim, California. Um, and I heard about this expo and it seemed like the place where, you know, hot new kind of and natural uh, food brands would go to launch their, their brands. Um, and that's where, you know, whole foods and all these buyers would go to find the next big thing. Um, so I spent several days at this expo. It's super overwhelming. There's thousands of stalls. And um, by the end of it, I remember feeling really shook by the fact that there really weren't any Asian flavors. I, and I realized that just because I personally was like, I really just wanted noodles. <laughs> and because I, you know, there's so many samples at this event and um, it was like one granola bar after another, or one like kind of protein shake after another. And by the end I was just like, I just want some flavor. <laughs> um, that's all. <laughs> and, uh, and then that kind of moment was, was when I realized, Oh shit, like there's actually no diversity in the natural food space and natural food is is where most of the growth is going to be coming from in food industry in the in the packaged food industry in the coming years and there's zero diversity there's also no diversity in the people at this show so they're the entrepreneurs and the buyers so the gatekeepers to healthy eating in america so um so i was like okay there's definitely a white space and I also knew that, you know, there is a ton of interest in Asian food and, and that, uh, you know, a lot of growth, there's a ton of interest in both hot sauce and Asian food, right? So all the trends are showing that there is that demand, but the, the, what I was seeing was that there was nobody fulfilling that demand. So then when I went back to Shanghai, I just started working on this Kickstarter campaign, um, which I thought would be a good kind of entryway into seeing just what the appetite would be in, in the U S um, and yeah. And, and it turned out to be a big hit. So um, that was the impetus that I needed to a get a big batch made at scale um, and then B to make the move to the U S. 
Oh, okay, cool. I mean, I didn't know that part about the chili oil that like everyone has their own kind of chili oil at home and their own recipes. It's, it sounds almost for me as a Korean American, like it sounds like uh, everyone's house kimchi. Like everyone makes their own kimchi, right? Like in Korea, you don't, you don't really buy kimchi. Like you just make it at home. Your mom makes it or your grandma makes it and they all have their own way of doing it. It's like someone's getting like, there's no standard, you know, in the sense. So uh, that's pretty interesting to hear. And it seems like from everything you're telling me, would it be right to say like your mission right now is kind of fighting the bias that exists against Chinese cuisine and culture? You know, when we first launched, that was definitely um, one of the main objectives, right? Because we knew that we were launching potentially to some resistance, right? People have... Um, almost everyone in this country has encountered Chinese food, right? Probably everybody. It's actually probably the most popular cuisine in America because there's the most number of restaurants. Um, and, uh, but as a result, you know, I think everybody has their own ideas of what Chinese food is. That's very personal to them. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I think for, for a long time, and, and hopefully this is, I think this is starting to change for the better, but for a long time, you know, people equated, um, uh, you know, the, um, the, the authenticity of Chinese food with how cheap it was, right? If it was expensive, it couldn't be authentic. Um, so there's, that was just one of many different, um, biases or, you know, um, kind of false narratives that existed about Chinese food. And so I knew that I was walking into that. Um, so that was also, you know, a factor in why the original jar design, and we had just launched a rebrand that came out two months ago, but the original jar design, it was, um, you know, also very bold and bright in color, but it was like kind of a neon kind of hot pink type color. And um, that was why I made that choice because, I actually wanted people to question why they expected a Chinese sauce to look different. Um, so it was really kind of like, you know, turning some of these biases on their heads and allowing people to um, interrogate, you know, themselves on why they have such, you know, uh, biases, where they came from. And that's not just from, you know, uh, Westerners, I mean, or, you know, with Chinese people as well, right? Like we all, we all have these, um, biased beliefs that are based on kind of, um, uh, you know, the white gaze, I might say, you know, like, so there's, um, you know, the, that's why when we have gotten criticism in the past, like people being like, oh, why is this so much more expensive than Lao Gan Ma or, you know, anything like that? Um, we often question, we ask the question back, we hold up a mirror to them, right? It's like, why do you, why do you expect Chinese food to be cheap? Like, what is it that makes you think that the people that produce this cuisine do not deserve to, uh, you know, to, to make, um, you know, to, to make a profit from, from their work and from their craft. Right. Um, there's, there's a lot of things that, um, go into that. And so we kind of, you know, allow the viewer or the, the customer to, to ask those questions of themselves and kind of find their own answers. Um, but I would say that lately since our rebrand and since we've been, 
you know, in market for two years now. Um, we are, our, our goal is less to, um, to defy these stereotypes or to, you know, you know, come on the, um, the defensive about it. Um, I think we just are at this point. It's like, we're here, you know, and it's like, there's nothing for us to explain to anyone. And that's also part of me reclaiming my birth name, honestly, because I realized that um, by going by Jenny for so long, I was really trying to appease others. I was trying to make others more comfortable, right? And um, in doing so, I was losing sight of who I was and I was, you know, really just performing, right? To the expectations of, of others. And so similarly with our brand, it's like, we have nothing to prove to anyone. Um, we just are. And I think our main goal now is just to really um, make sure that everyone, like we're trying, we're, we're, we're um, aspiring to a world where um, everyone can feel like they belong. Right. And, um, you know, I think in, in something as specific as our story, which, you know, is a very specific story because it's super personal to my, my personal experience. Um, but in telling that story, um, I think we've been surprised actually at how many people have really connected to that. There, there's something really universal in the, um, in the quest to find a sense of belonging and, um, and, um, and stand in your own truth. And so, you know, we want for a world where there's hundreds of different types of chili sauces, um, all of which are expressing something very different and all of which um, have the, we want to create the space for all of them to, to exist. Um, yeah. So that's what I would say where we are today. In regards to rebranding, since you brought it up, 2020 was a pretty crazy year for you, I would imagine, because obviously with COVID being a really big uh, factor here, I'm sure you were, it's, there was a lot of anti-Chinese um, rhetoric and sentiments uh, around this time, especially with COVID and you know the origins of it. Um, and I think I saw even some comments being made on, on, on your Facebook page and, you know, just other spaces that you guys occupy, um, just nasty, honestly, like just nasty comments. And then there was also a Sam Sifton write up, uh, in mid April. Right. And I think I heard you sold out three months worth in three days, something crazy like that. You restructured your supply chain. Cause obviously you have to meet this three X demand. And then you did a rebranding in November of 2020. So <laughs> you had a you had a roller coaster of a, of a ride uh, last year. Right. Yeah. But my question is, what prompted the rebrand? Was that also because you you just just as you had said, you feel like you don't need to necessarily defy a stereotype or or or, or something like that along those lines? Or I was I was just curious. Yeah, for sure. Um, the rebrand, actually, the work for that started in the summer of 2019. So it had taken uh, more than a year to to roll out and, you know, largely because of COVID um, and like production delays um, that affected the jars. So, um, but we had started in June, which was just over a year after we had launched. And, um, you know, even then I knew that like, I, you know, as, as the company launched and as we started to, um, to 
kind of find our footing, there it became more and more apparent to me that, you know, this isn't going to be just a chili sauce company. Um, that, you know, the reason why I was doing this was, and as I faced challenge after challenge, whether it was on the supply chain side or, you know, resistance from, you know, uh, people even, you just mentioned like people who um, uh, had a lot of criticism to throw our way or investors who told me that there is no space for a D2C Chinese food company because it's too niche or, you know, there's a lot of um, resistance that I've faced um, the entire way. Right. And that just gave me more fuel to um, to show that actually um, people do are willing to pay more money for a higher quality product and that Chinese food does deserve to be premium. And um, there's a lot of other things. Right. But it's like th those are um, those are the things that kind of kept me going. So what I realized uh, in the summer of 2019 was that um, I wanted this to be more than a chili sauce company and that uh, we had, um, I wanted to express our current mission, right, of, of creating space for, for diversity to exist. And, um, and in order to do that, um, we needed to... Uh, tell a bit more of a narrative story with our branding and to um, to do so in a way that was engaging and, and visually engaging. And mm -hmm. I felt like the, um, the original branding uh, no longer served to tell the complete story of who we are and where we're headed. And so that includes like what we stand for, our values, the fact that, um, you know, we are rooted in tradition, but we are made for the way that people eat today. So our tagline is not traditional, but personal because everything uh, that someone creates is personal to their experience. And, um, and that cannot be discounted. Right. So the fact that people would um, say to me, you know, this is just like Laogama, there is no difference. That's them trying to put uh, us into a box that is neat and is simple enough for them to process and to just you know, uh, make peace with, right? But people are not that simple. People are complicated. Cultures are complicated, right? And so it was just not, um, it never sat right with me <laughs> that, you know, you were able to make such sweeping remarks about about things, um, even if it's as innocuous seeming as a chili oil, right? So um, that's also why we have this Venn diagram on, the, on every jar where it's kind of like <clears throat> two circles, one that says, uh, you know, people in Sichuan and then one that says people everywhere else. And in the middle where it meets, it says this tastes different. So, you know, it's to illustrate that, you know, this combination of these 18 ingredients that goes into this chili sauce has actually never been put together like this before. And this technique and, 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 and my approach to it, uh, is, you know, my own and, um, to the point where when I give it to my family members in Sichuan, they are like, oh, this tastes different. Like, you know, like, oh, interesting. Um, I would, I, I, you know, I make mine, you know, differently. And um, so it's really just to, to showcase that 
um, it's different and that's okay. And there's, there should be space for it to exist alongside something like a logama, you know? Yeah. I didn't, I didn't think of it in that regard, but I'm sure you get that a lot. People trying to box you in or kind of sweep you with, with, with something else. Cause that's just how people process things as well. Right. It's much easier to compare it to something that you know already. And I think that's just going to be always a thing, but we spoke about where you were, where you're now, and you know, we're like 19 days into the new year. What's on the horizon for you? What are you setting out to accomplish this year? Like, I mean, personally or also with, with your company? The team is growing, which is super exciting. Um, I was running this business on my own for the first almost two years, um, uh, or a year and a half, actually. And um, this August, we actually finally had our first hire and uh, first full-time hire. And now we are um, up to six people and soon to be seven. So um, it's super exciting to, you know, um, see the growth really start to speed up. Um, and it's, it's a huge learning curve for me, um, to, to manage a team, to make sure that I am doing everything I can to enable everyone on the team to do their best work. Um, and you know, whereas in the past I was literally doing everything. Um, and that comes from a bit of a, um, you know, a need for control, <laughs> but, um, I'm learning that the, the balance between, you know, letting between, uh, control and, you know, letting go of that to allow even faster growth. Right. So, um, I'm learning a ton on this journey and, you know, for me, like building a company that lasts, that can have the potential to really become a household name is, so much defined by the building blocks, which are the people and the culture. So I'm placing enormous amount of importance on that and in developing, um, you know, my team uh, and as individuals, you know, having them kind of bring their full selves to work and, um, and feel as fulfilled as they can be um, in, in, in themselves um, so that they can, you know, work as a team to get to our mutual goals. So that's, um, a big focus. And we are, we do have pretty aggressive goals. We actually grew a thousand percent in 2020 versus 2019. So we 10 X our business, which is insane. Um, and we are, you know, looking to, um, to continue to grow very rapidly in this year. We are, um, starting to enter retail. So uh, whereas we started D2C, um, we are now targeting going into like natural channels. Um, so hopefully you'll be able to see us uh, nationally very soon in stores near you. Um, and um, potentially some, well, not potentially, we definitely are launching <laughs> a few really exciting new products. So Awesome. Do you want to, do you want to quickly talk about the few cities that you're in where you do almost like same day or next day delivery? Cause I experienced it myself and I had told you before we started recording this, how amazing of an experience that was. <laughs> yeah. So we're working um, with logistics partners in New York, Brooklyn, uh, LA, SF, and Chicago to do same day. Um, in some of these cities, it's, it's actually two hours, um, but same day or next day delivery. And um, it's, it's something that, um, you know, we, we definitely see a huge 
potential ahead of us for, uh, especially as, you know, we all saw this past holiday season, the mail carriers were just Mm -hmm. absolutely crushed Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, and everybody's suffering. Right. And so the brands suffer, the mail carriers suffer, the customers suffer and yeah, yeah. So, um, so there's gotta be better solutions and, you know, I think we're definitely moving towards uh, more of an on-demand, um, you know, kind of system. And so, um, yeah, hopefully we'll be able to expand into more cities that way. But um, yeah. Wow. I'll, I am so happy for you, honestly, just after hearing your story and how, how far you've come and how much more work there is to do. But it seems like mm-hmm. you're really focusing on what matters, which is honestly the people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really great to hear. And uh, I know there's going to be more resistance to come that comes along your way during this journey. I mean, I saw... Mm-hmm your Instagram story today about a <laughs> funny Instagram story about a QVC broker um, saying that they don't do spicy condiments. Well, and, she uh, said, she said that um, Americans, I guess, you know, QVC likes to say that they're, they are in a hundred million households. So mm-hmm. she said that QVC's audience um, hates anything spicy and uh, it would never sell. So um, I thought that was very amusing. (laughs) That is very amusing. I saw it too. And I was like, I don't think that's true, (laughs) but all right. You know, um, well, the sheer amount of feed or responses that I've gotten from that, um, from that post and my tweet has told me enough. I think (laughs) people, um, people vehemently disagreed with her. So. Awesome. And um, lastly, if people want to follow along your journey, do you want to uh, give us your Instagram handles? And Yeah. So my personal Instagram is at Jing Theory and um, we're at flybyjing um, on all platforms. And um, our website is flybyjing.com. So easy. Thanks for keeping it so mm-hmm. clean and easy for, for everybody involved. I think it's amazing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thanks for being on the show. And again, just like sharing your journey with us and you know, we're, we're, we're all rooting for you and we want to see you do well. And uh, yeah, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for creating this platform and shining a light on, on all of us and um, yeah, for doing the work that you do. If you've made it this far, thanks so much for tuning in and listening to this podcast episode with Jing. And Jing, thanks so much for your time and willingness to be on the podcast. We are doing a little giveaway of their trio on Instagram, probably tomorrow. So stay tuned. Um, Would love for everybody to take part in it and win a few jars from Fly by Jing. And so stay tuned on Instagram. Our Instagram handle is at with warm welcome if you don't follow us already. And uh, yeah, would advise everyone follow us on Instagram just because we are trying to be more active on there and engaging with people, with our followers, with our community. And I think that's the best way to stay tuned with what we're up to um, as a podcast and kind of as, a, as, a, as an organization. I'm wishing everybody a great rest of the week. Um, I think today is a really big day here in the US. And I hope that everyone is safe. And you know, I'm really excited. I'm really excited for what's to come. And I hope you are too. And I'll see you next week on With Warm Welcome.